This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 160. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, as you heard at the very top, uh, we have a, a sponsor for this episode. So I'd like to give another very special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Friedman LLP. And I'd also like to remind you to save the date. The Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual will be taking place April 20th through 22nd, 2021. The website is now live where you can find all the details on the event. That website is www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and the registration is open. So once you're there, click register and you'll be all set. Just follow the instructions from there. Again, that website is planetmicrocapshowcase.com. I'm very excited to see you all there. Another quick update. I'm trying to keep this intro short today. And uh, I wanted to let y'all know that we're finally caught up on posting of all the past episodes of the Investors Roundtable on this podcast stream. So from now on, the audio version of every new episode will be shared on the stream on Friday mornings. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Brian Feroldi. He is a writer at The Motley Fool and will be a featured speaker at the upcoming Microcap Club Leadership Summit on September 23rd and 24th, 2021. I recently became a huge fan of Brian's because I truly believe in his mission to spread financial wellness and how he's going about doing it. Access to quality information about finance is hard to find, and Brian is doing his part with his work at The Motley Fool, as well as his insights shared on Twitter and distilling difficult concepts on his Substack. We also talk uh, a lot in this interview a lot about how to properly light a, a campfire as well. So uh, thank you again for tuning in to episode 160 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Brian Feroldi. Welcome, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And joining me today is a gentleman that, you know, I, I only recently started following, and I, I'm very, very thankful that I did. He is a writer at The Motley Fool and uh, a great image creator, uh, inspiring image creator uh, via his Substack, which I highly recommend you all go and check out. 
And uh, without further ado, we got Brian Feraldi on the program today. Brian, thank you for joining me. Robert, awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, so I, you're actually also speaking at the upcoming Microcap Club uh, Investing Summit uh, that's happening a little bit later this year, being hosted by our mutual friend, Ian Castle. So I'm, I'm sure everyone's already going to be looking forward to that because you got so much to talk about with Microcaps. I mean, let's let's be real today, right? Microcaps are super fun. They're an interesting uh, part of the market. And Ian, in particular, has been someone that has really changed my uh, my opinion of them. I always known that they were uh, the Wild West, and I've really taught people to uh, uh, avoid them and go for higher quality companies. But uh, people like Ian have really changed my opinion of them. Uh, and there is a way to invest in microcaps the right way. All right. Well, you know, I'd love to get get your background. You know, how how, how did you get to where you're at today and, and really develop that passion for investing that is effervescent? Uh, that's the first time I think I've ever used that word on the podcast. Effervescent. Very, that's a wonderful word you just threw out of there. I can't spell it. I can't <laughs> spell it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> take, Maybe take I'll it make up. that a part of my title, effervescent uh, financial <laughs> wellness advocate. <laughs> um, so growing up, uh, I... Uh, my, I, I came from a well-to-do family, but uh, we were in. We never really talked about money, uh, like uh, ever. I know that my parents were generally good with money, but they and they didn't say uh, flaunt uh, wealth. But it's not like they ever sat us down and said, "Here's what you do," or "Here's how you invest," or anything like that. It was largely a taboo subject um, in my family, which is just so crazy that the subject of money has been made taboo because it it affects every aspect of your life and it's it's just so nutty that people are given no training no guidance and yet you're just expected to know how to manage money well it just it just makes absolutely no sense when you when you say it out loud and uh, i'm trying to de-taboo money as much as possible so that people can uh, talk about it and and learn about it and really learn the fundamental principles uh, to making their life uh, better. Uh, but when I graduated, I graduated from college in 2004. I didn't know really what I wanted to do. Through a family friend, I got connected with a uh, startup medical device company just through sheer luck. Uh, that was a great career move because that company went on to be uh, publicly traded and uh, very su very successful. Uh, but after I graduated, my dad handed me a copy of uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is the first financial book that I'd ever picked up or, or heard of in my life. Um, I was just naturally drawn to the subject. I can't tell you why. I think some people just really, really are into finance and money and, and a huge swath of the population uh, just isn't. So that kickstarted my, uh, that was the first time I ever read something that said, you are in business for yourself. Uh, you are capable of becoming wealthy. Uh, investing is the route to do so. Think like a business owner. Think like an entrepreneur. Uh, say, save money and make yourself better. And from there, I just instantly fell in love with the concept of uh, financial freedom, about becoming, uh, you know, that you are your own uh, business owner uh, per se. And I just gobbled up every piece of financial content that I could get my hands on over the next um, uh, 10 plus years. That led me to read books by uh, The Motley Fool, which led, led me to fool.com. I became a passionate uh, individual stock investor. They really helped me to uh, hone my skills. And five years ago, um, I was afforded the opportunity to start to write for them uh, on a full-time basis. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Very cool. So I want to get, I want to go back to that moment when your dad finally gave you the book. You graduated college. I mean, did you look him like, dude, you're giving this to me now? Like I could have, I could have got my start like four years ago in high school, you know, like, or were you also thinking to yourself, you know what, now was the right time for me to really get started with it because I was able to figure out like, Hey, this is interesting to me, you know, so I want to learn more, you know, what was that thought process? That's a really good question. And I don't know if I would have been as receptive to the message of, of the book when I was in high school as I was post-high school, post-college, because then I, you're on your own, right? All of a sudden, you are responsible for your financial life and you have money coming in and you, for the first time, have bills to pay, or at least for me, the first time that I had bills to pay. Um, so, I don't know if I would have been receptive, as receptive to the idea earlier, or I like I like to think that I would be, but that would be rewriting uh, history in my favor. Um, so I'm just happy that 
I was given that knowledge right from the get-go. I mean, I had the luxury of being 22 uh, at the time, and I was the first time to say, yes, wow, I should start investing. So many people don't realize that until they're 65, uh, at which time uh, all the opportunity or the huge lion share of the opportunity is really behind them. So I'm more thankful, but sure, let's say I wish it was done earlier. <laughs> no, I, I'm in the same boat, man. Like like my, my, my dad had, had experience on Wall Street, you know, working in microcaps. And it wasn't until my junior year after I did one internship as a junior analyst where I was like, this is awesome. And I finally, and I, and I was like, give me one up on Wall Street. Let me read, like that was my first book. And, and so it wasn't even until then, until I had, until I had the, my own awareness of something, this is something I want to learn more about, you know, because that really ties into a lot of what your mission is right now, which is wanting to spread financial wellness because it's still, because it, it, it's an interesting dilemma I feel like amongst people where you know they don't want to be force fed but at the same time they're like damn it I wish 20 years ago dumbass me read that book or, or had had that knowledge you know so when, when you're starting to realize when you, you brought up something else in that first answer about um, there being certain taboos that you're looking to get rid of what what are some of those taboos that you know you notice right off the bat that you're like, all right, these are things that I really want to combat. I mean, just talking about money in, in, in the first place is a, is a is a huge taboo uh, with people. People are afraid to say, uh, here's what my uh, house uh, is worth, especially, um, I guess I'm not so so against that with your your peer group. That I can at least understand, but at least within your family, that is the ultimate taboo that I think you need to uh, to to break down. If you don't want to share your your salary on uh, with with, with um, uh, publicly, no no problem, right? If you don't want to share disclosure holdings, uh, no problem. But I think that you should be able to talk openly and honestly about money uh, with your fan with your friends uh, and with uh, and with your family, and you should be able to admit things that you don't know and ask each other for advice. Uh, but I, I just really think it's important to break down the taboos of money uh, with your own family. I mean, in particular, your, your own kids. I try and be as open and honest with my kids as I possibly uh, can. I've made them all investors, whether they uh, like it or not. And so far, since we're investing in fun companies that they uh, like to own, uh, like uh, like Tesla and uh, say Chipotle, uh, that makes it much more engaging and fun for them. But I also want to talk to them about how to buy a car, uh, how to buy a house, what things cost, uh, what, uh, what your salary is, how much you set aside for, uh, for, for savings, uh, for, for investing, how to think about long-term purchases. So anything that I can do to help break down that taboo within a family in particular uh, is what I'm interested in. Wait, so how, how old are your kids now? My kids are 10, 8, and 6. Wow. I, you know what? They might have the record for being the youngest investors potentially right now. Should, should we have them on? I mean, cause uh, I want to get They're pretty good. They, they probably got, <laughs> they probably got better tips than half the people we know at this point. They, they're, they're pretty good. They don't watch the stock market at all. They don't understand anything, but they know how to pick brands that they are interested in and their, their portfolios have beaten the market. I will tell you that. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, I, I, I want another thing I want to go back to real quick. So you got, you started writing at the Motley Fool. You've been there for about five years still there, of course. You know, was there anything in particular that you write about for them that, that people might not be aware of? I started out... Um I started out covering the healthcare sector because that was where my previous uh, job was, and I was focused uh, on healthcare with a with a kind of a keen focus on uh, biotechnology. That's just uh, the need that they had at the time, so I did my best to to fill that. Uh, over time, I was given more freedom to write about other companies, and specifically the two areas of focus for for me and my most of my most of my capital uh, and most of my knowledge is in uh, technology as well as healthcare. I think that those are two extremely fertile markets for investors to go and hunt for, uh, for ideas. So gradually over time, I had the freedom to kind of explore uh, other names uh, and, other, and other stocks that, uh, that were in different areas. And now um, I have the freedom to kind of write about whatever, whatever piques my interest. You know, I got to say, it's, I'm going to call it the fool factory because I, I got to tell you, like I've, I've interviewed quite a few people on here now that have, are either currently still working there or got their start there. And I mean, it's it's just so amazing the infrastructure that the Molly Fool has in place that really helps individuals like you and others to you know either help help you along your way to your next step 
or just it's it's great being there right now and, and continuing to write for them. I mean, what about being at the Molly Pool has helped improve your skills as an investor? Everything. I mean, the Motley Fool, the, the best thing about the Motley Fool is the, uh, the first word is Motley. There is no uh, company line on any stock. You are allowed and encouraged to, um, to voice dissenting opinions on, on stocks. I mean, uh, David and Tom are, are the founders of the company. And if I wanted to, I could go out and write a, uh, a scathing article about why their top pick uh, this month is, is terrible uh, if, I, if, if I wanted to, for example. And they don't, they wouldn't fire me. Uh, they wouldn't, I wouldn't get a nasty gram from HR. They would actually celebrate the diversity of opinions. That fact alone <clears throat> makes it an, a, a very interesting place because the, again, there's no, there's no company line on, on anything. You're allowed to voice your opinion and they want to know what you think. And they know that a diversity of opinions uh, on companies actually makes everybody uh, smarter. It's good to know the bull side of the case as well as the bear uh, side of the case. But that plus they have this amazing corporate culture that uh, really attracts people that are just super passionate about, uh, about investing. And people come there to, to, to learn and engage uh, with each other. So it's just a really great place for people that are just uh, in love with investing. Very cool. All right. So in a minute, we're going to get to your investing philosophy and talk about biotech and technology and, and maybe even some current events. But, you know, I really wanted to first attack the uh, your, your mission. You know, we, I brought it up a little earlier about uh, to spread financial wellness. You know, you have it on your Twitter account. You know, you're also on your Substack, brianferaldi.substack.com. I encourage everybody to go and subscribe to that. Um, so it, it kind of ties into my question about taboos. But, you know, what to, to get to your actual mission itself and, and what you're going about to solve it, what, what would you say are some of the problems that you've observed and why there's been a lack of financial wellness out there right now? I mean, anybody with a passing knowledge of finances and America, let alone the world, know that uh, we're not in good shape. Uh, there are so many people out there that have huge levels of credit card uh, debt. They buy bad financial uh, products. They don't have, I, I forget the exact number, but I believe it's something like 50% of the population couldn't come up with $400 uh, it, to cover an emergency without having to, uh, to use debt. That to me just speaks to the extreme need for uh, financial uh, education. Once you learn the basic concepts about uh, about money, uh, create an emergency fund, uh, have a develop a high uh, develop a high savings rate, avoid high interest debt, don't buy things you can't afford. Like those are just core principles that everybody should learn uh, about money. But again, we're not taught that. We're not taught that in schools, and you're really dependent on being taught that at home. Well. You can be taught that at home if your parents understand that, uh, and if they're if they're good teachers. Uh, so many people themselves were not taught that, so we're just left on our own in so many ways when it comes to uh, to to money. Uh, thankfully, today it's never been easier to get very high quality, good uh, information uh, for free on podcasts uh, like yours, on blogs, uh, on, on social media like Twitter and even Instagram and Pinterest. There's so many wonderful resources that people can use if they choose to, to really get their financial uh, life in order. And I'm glad you brought up my mission because I am a, I've learned the hard way that how important missions are. And so many people, myself included, like 10 years ago, thought that mission statements were just hogwash, that they were just pure corporate BS, something that the HR department had to make up uh, to like get a corporate a, a seal of approval uh, in some way. And the reason I thought that, and I guarantee 90 plus percent of the people listening to this uh, think that is because that's what they are. They are nothing more than, than, than corporate uh, BS. However, I have since learned that a organization or a person that is mission-driven, that is like their North Star, the thing that they are basing all of their decisions around. And my personal mission statement for myself is to spread financial uh, wellness. And I chose every single one of those words with extreme uh, care uh, because 
I, I've discovered about myself that the reason I'm here on earth is to help other people figure out, figure out their money stuff. And my real, my, I initially thought that my focus was going to be on helping achieve, uh, helping spread financial freedom. That's something that I am super passionate about. I am super into the, the FIRE movement and people that want to uh, retire as early as possible and really get their money uh, in order. However, I realized that only about 1% of the population is interested in financial, uh, in financial freedom because it requires hmm. so much sacrifice. Sacrificing uh, upfront to get a high savings rate and to really get into to finances. And while I'm really into that subject, I thought that I would do more for humanity by spreading financial wellness. And wellness to me means thinking about all of your finances uh, holistically. So if you're somebody that has tons and tons of credit card debt, and I can convince you to pay that off, I have moved you towards financial wellness. That kind of person might not ever be interested in financial freedom, but I still, I, I'm still passionate about helping that person make their life, their financial life, a little bit better. So that's why I'm focused on financial wellness as opposed to financial freedom. Got it. You know, I got to ask you, Brian, because I mean, look, this is your mission. You want to teach. You want to help. You want to get people towards financial wellness. Why has it been so hard? You know, because I think it goes beyond just the fact that there have, the education hasn't been there, you know, in high school or amongst the parents and when they were in school, you know, why, why is it just so hard to, to get financial literacy in the hands of just everyday, everyone, not, not just US, Americans, everyone? Because we are, uh, we're, we're not programmed to the, the the ultimate shortcoming of human beings is we are, we are biologically programmed to think about the short term. We are, we are programmed to survive in this moment, in this moment uh, alone. And any decisions that we make have to benefit me uh, right now. You can't blame people for being like that. That is a survival tool that we've used throughout uh, history. It takes training. It takes training to teach yourself how to think of yourself in the next 5, 10, uh, 20 years. That doesn't come naturally uh, to people. It definitely doesn't come uh, naturally to me. So that, that's one problem, just making people aware of the fact that they have to think of their future self and take short-term Accept short-term pain today uh, to have a longer-term uh, pay payoff. That that's with everything, with uh, with relationships, with your career, with your with your money, with your health. It's all about making short-term. Be willing to make short-term sacrifices today uh, to better yourself. Uh, down the road. So first off, I think you're just fighting against uh, human nature. Uh, the second thing you're, you're fighting against is just a lack of financial uh, education uh, on the subject. And, and third, every bit of society uh, tells you to spend, spend, spend. Uh, we are naturally inclined to compare ourselves to, to our peers. And if our peers buys um, a house or buys a car or, or um, subscribes to Netflix or whatever it is, uh, we are programmed to compare ourselves to them and say, I also desire uh, that thing. And when you add in the, uh, the influence of just society in general, it's understandable why people are perpetually on this earn, spend, earn, spend uh, hamster wheel. And it really takes somebody to, to uh, foresight to be able to pull back and say, if I want to get off this hamster wheel, I can't consume at the level of my income, which again, isn't something that comes naturally uh, to most people, myself included. So then what, what, Brian, what would you say are some of the things you're doing to help you know, people towards their financial wellness goals or for that 1% financial freedom? You know what is it? It's through obviously writing for the Molly Fool through your Substack. You know what 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 are some of the messages and how you're conveying them? And and have you started to see some of that change amongst people that you thought never would start thinking about their financial wellness? Well, one of the things that I like to do is create easy to consume financial content and then put it out to the world for free uh, to consume on their uh, to consume on their own. Uh, for example, one of the things one of the things that I that I made that's um, that's I think extremely useful is just a financial planning action steps, uh, which is just like here are the 14 steps that I recommend everybody goes through uh, with their with their money. And and step one, for example, is just track your expenses. Period. Track your expenses. If you if you have never tracked your expenses before and you do that for the first time, I guarantee you, you will look at your, your wake of spending and it will make you think and act differently. You'll be like, well, I'm spending how much uh, on restaurants? We're 
spending how much on subscription services. We're spending how much on clothing. Just being aware of where your money goes almost always leads to uh, to be behavior change. So that's things one. Uh, track your expenses, and there's lots of free easy to use tools out on the web uh, that will do that for you, like uh, Mint, uh, Personal Capital. Uh, there's paid products like uh, uh, You Need a Budget, or you can even do an Excel uh, if, if, if you want to. Or some credit cards actually do that, uh, do that for you. Uh, number two is to get a snapshot of where you are today. Uh, make a net worth statement for yourself. How much, what do you own and what do you owe? Make an income statement for yourself. How much are you spending uh, versus how much are you are you pulling in? Uh, so those are the kind of the first two very important steps. Just get a get a really good grasp on uh, what you're spending and where you are financially. From there, it's just another of other steps about optimizing your expenses. And it's really not about depriving yourself. It's more about asking yourself, is the money I'm spending on whatever worth the value to me? Uh, that is a really key question that I think if people ask themselves, uh, honestly, they would make different decisions. Uh, if you are really into uh, surfing, uh, for example, and you want to spend lavishly to, to, uh, to buy yourself surfboards and wetsuits and that kind of thing, because that just brings you tremendous joy. I'm going to say, absolutely, go spend on it. Like, if you really love that thing, spend, uh, spend aggressively on that area to really make your, your yourself uh, happy. But if you're the type of person that does not get any pleasure at all about driving a really new fancy car, and you have one. Ditch that car and get yourself a, a low-cost uh, beater, and you will save yourself hundreds of dollars per month. So it's really about aligning your your expenses to maximize. Uh, uh, aligning your expenses with your values and make sure that you're getting the most happiness for every dollar that you spend. Very good. I think that's, I, 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 seriously, I recommend everybody go follow and subscribe to Brian's Substack. It's so easily digestible. And, and we really need more stuff like that out there is making financial education just more easy to consume and fun. I mean, that that's really what it comes down to is that it's just, it's not entertaining enough. I mean, that's sad to say that you have to make it entertaining, but at the end of the day, it helps. I think if you can make it more fun, uh, as well as easy, easy to understand and, uh, and easy to follow, uh, that's really the, uh, the, the the trifecta there. That's really hard to do. And and people like, I, I think me and you are just naturally interested uh, in this subject. Uh, you mentioned you got into microcaps just like instantaneously. It was like, yes, uh, I, I'm in. It, some people are just naturally not interested in money or finance at all. And like it or not, uh, you don't have a choice there. Money is going to affect huge huge parts of your life. It's it's just like health. Whether you're into dieting and exercise or anything like that at all, it doesn't matter. You have no choice. You ha if, if you want to be healthy, you have to pay attention. If you want to be wealthy, you have to pay attention. And it's not even like a materialistic thing. You know, it's not like you have to, you know, uh, uh, be so into money, you know, and, you know, like, oh, I don't want to be into money. Like, look at my friends. Or That's not really what we're saying at all. You know, it's really just comes down to, it, it just understanding that it affects every aspect of your life with whether you are aware of it or not. That's really what we're trying to say. Yeah, I totally, I, I totally agree. And it's not necessarily about design. I, I don't desire money because I can, I can buy uh, nicer, nicer things with it. Uh, I made a list. Uh, one exercise that I, I think that everybody should do is just make, just write down a list of everything that you love to do. Like your absolute favorite things to do. If you had, if you had a wide open schedule and could do anything in the world, what would you do? Write down a list uh, in order. Then look at that list and rank them by how much those things cost. Right? How many things are 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 could be your favorite things to do that you absolutely love that literally cost zero dollars or a few dollars? Like there is a massive list for me personally. Two of my favorite things: board games, campfires. If I if I'm playing board games with with friends or family or at a campfire with friends or family, I am having a fantastic time. What do those cost? Like nothing. So under that scenario, if 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 saving money is a goal for you, just maximize the number of things that you do that you love that cost nothing, and minimize the number of things that you do that cost a ton and don't bring you a lot of joy. All right, this brings up probably the most important point of the whole podcast that I think we really need to dig in. So what's the proper way to set up a campfire? 
you know, so that I can, <laughs> I like, I always mess up with the, you know, letting enough oxygen in. And I was a boy scout. That was a long time ago. I forgot. So is it, is it, I, I was just, I, and my wife just gave me a hard time the other day because I messed up how to set up the fire pit. So what's, what, this is important. There's a lot of analogies to investing here. Okay. So if you think I'm just asking, you know, an out there question, I'm not, there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's, there's synonyms and, 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 you know, allegories. So Brian, I'll take it away. It is funny that you say that because my wife uh, had a friend over the other day and she tried to do a campfire and she was like, I can't figure it out. We're trying, uh, we're trying to do it. And it is a skill that you really have to develop. Uh, who, 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 making making a fire without pouring gasoline on it in the beginning is a skill uh, that needs to be uh, developed. So obviously, make sure you have uh, the wind taken care of. Make sure you have a uh, little kindling in, in the middle. Uh, build uh, You want the big logs on the outside and also on top. I cheat and put pizza boxes uh, in there because you can't recycle pizza boxes, but you can burn them. Uh, so pizza boxes are, are, my, are my secret. <laughs> Nice. Okay. That that's good advice. I'm de- I'm gonna I'm gonna now eat a lot more pizza. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So we're now at that point in the podcast where you know I'd love to dig into your investing philosophy a little bit as well. You know, I mean, as we've made very clear, you write for the Motley Fool. You've been there for a few years. You've been obsessed with investing for a very long time now. So, you know, what what would you say is your investing philosophy and strategy when you're looking at potential new investment? Sure. I've invested long enough and I've basically made every mistake that you can possibly make. And every single time I make a mistake, I really try and learn what did I do wrong uh, with that mistake. And I've also studied the market and seeing what works uh, over over time. And I've had I, I've been doing it for over 15 years now, so I've gotten a sense of what what kind of investor uh, I am and what I am after. And if I had to boil down to what my particular style of investing is, uh, I am looking for high growth, low risk, low risk businesses, high growth, low risk. That is a rare combination. And those two things mean different things to, uh, to, uh, to other people. And if you were to ask me 10 years ago, do high growth, low risk businesses exist? I would have said no. I would have said that that's an impossible uh, combination uh, to, to go for. Uh, how, however, I think that they, I think that they, uh, they do exist. So my returns will never be uh, the highest over any short-term period of time because I'm not interested in, um, I, I don't invest in, in companies that have uh, that are extremely high risk, that are growing uh, to the moon or anything like that. Uh, I am after uh, high growth and low risk. And let me define low risk for you because that's the more important uh, of the two. When I say low risk, uh, I mean that it has a very strong uh, balance sheet. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean that its margins are are stable and, and are expanding. Uh, I mean that it's free cash flow positive, it's earnings positive, and it has high returns on capital. Uh, I, I take that to mean that it's got a wide moat, uh, that it's expanding, that there's tons of optionality, and optionality is a fancy way of saying it has a history of launching new products or new services that open up new revenue opportunities uh, for it. I want its growth to be uh, organic. I want it to be in a market that's growing. I want it to have operating leverage. I want it to be run by able uh, management team that has high inside ownership, gets great reviews from employees. That's mission driven. I want recurring revenue. I want the ability to raise prices. I want customers that are um, that will spend on that product no matter what's going on in the economy that are low cost to acquire. And I want a stock that has already beaten the market and the management team consistently exceeds expectations. Holy cow, is that asking a lot? Like that is asking a lot uh, of of any business, but uh, I created a checklist for myself that I can take any stock through, and I can go top to bottom, and I check for all of those things plus some uh, plus some other risks uh, such as customer concentration, such as extreme dilution, such as growth by acquisition, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I can quantify or put a score on what I consider to be a very high quality, low risk business. Uh, from there, I, I, I ask myself, how big is the potential growth rate over the next five uh, plus years? And if I find a combination of a very high quality, uh, very low risk company with a very high growth rate, uh, that will be something that I'm attracted to. So uh, how would you then define what exactly you mean by low risk? Because my microcap brain, you know, you talked earlier about looking at tech and biotech and I'm like, oh, biotech, like, like high growth, low risk, like 
not like not biotech, but um, I'm, I'm just curious. So what, what do you mean by low risk for those listening? Yeah, I think that, uh, uh, so I wrote about biotech um, investments. I, that's a sector of the market I, I covered. I do not invest uh, in biotech. I do invest in healthcare uh, stocks and uh, specifically my category that I focus on is medical device uh, companies because that's a category that I, uh, that's a category of that my career was uh, previously in. So I understand uh, that. But a risk to me really means about what are the chances that the the, the financials of the business will be severely will be permanently impacted uh, in the future, either by uh, by competition, either by changing uh, landscapes uh, in, in the market, either by incompetence uh, from management, either by competitive uh, forces, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I mean by by low risk. And I think if a company has um, uh, very strong uh, financial statements. If its customers are dependent on the product, uh, if they are, it's a repeat purchase product. If the company could raise prices uh, at will, if there is low customer concentration, uh, I think that's actually a pretty low risk business. Uh, so that that's what I mean by low risk. Very good. All right. So then, you know, just to to get a little bit more about your your process itself, you know, once you've identified that opportunity that you, you know, met all the checklists, it's good to go. You know, what, what, how, how do you then size into a position? Do you take a small starter position and then talk with manager? You know, what, what's your process from there? My buying process is, so at any given time, I, I have a big database that I make for myself that has listed out all of the stocks that I've ever come across that I've, that I've ranked. And I, and, I, and I put the highest quality companies uh, at the top of the list and they kind of go by from highest quality to lowest quality. At any given time when I'm deploying capital, I am looking for a, a combination of three things. I want highest quality business, best possible valuation and highest long-term growth potential. That's what I'm trying to, to optimize for. So whatever company kind of checks all meets bubbles up uh, from, from that group is where I is where I put my capital and that's the stock that I, that I focus on. When it comes to buying a, a company, uh, I scale in slowly uh, over time. I like to think of it as like almost like managing um, a cruise ship. Like I know the direction that I want to point, but I know it's going to take me a long time uh, to get there. And I've learned the hard way that that's the way that I want to go because I have in the past been extremely convinced that some companies were like no brainer, 100% going to go up and I've been wrong. I've been wrong about that. Um, and I've made outsized bets on companies like that. And boy, did that, uh, that sting. My current, the current way that I work is I buy in 0.5% uh, increments. So half of 1% of my capital is deployed into any given stock uh, in any given uh, uh, period. I will buy that company uh, immediately if it if I if I think it has a good combination of that, and then I'll wait and watch it. What I want to see is that the company continues to execute uh, according to management's uh, plans. I want to see that my thesis is on track. And one thing that I do believe is. When you buy a company, uh, that's when you know the least uh, about it. I want to continue to increase my knowledge of that company uh, over time. I'm comfortable not knowing everything about a company with my first purchase because I'm committing so little uh, of my of my capital to it. But my goal is to buy that same company over and over again over a period of, say, uh, two years or so, each time trying to get the best combination of value and potential uh, that I can. If the company is successful and it grows, uh, once a company reaches three percent of my portfolio, I will not add new capital to that uh, to that company. Uh, once it's gotten to there, it's up to the company to grow uh, grow from there and take my portfolio uh, higher. It usually has to even get to three uh, percent because again, I'm adding very slowly over time. But to me, once it's at three percent, it's like okay, you have enough capital. It's your job here to earn a higher part in my portfolio. Very good. And, and one last question on, on your, your process, you know, what, what's your typical holding period? And then uh, are, are, would you say you're more con concentrated or diversified? You know, what's your typical amount of stocks that you have in your portfolio at any given time? I own between 80 and 100 stocks um, at any given time, which sounds like a lot. And some people think that that's way too, uh, too many. Uh, but it's important to realize that my portfolio is more concentrated than you would appear. It's not like I have 81% positions. Uh, 
based on my buying uh, system and my desire to hold on to companies for a long, long periods of time, I'm happy to let companies become uh, larger and larger portions of, of my portfolio. So for example, my largest holding right now is um, uh, Mercado Libre. Uh, the ticker symbol there is M-E-L-I. And that company has been a tremendous winner uh, in, in in the marketplace. It's it's at least a 20 bagger uh, for me, if not more, based on my, my smallest uh, purchase price. And what I've done there is I just added capital to it like nine years ago, uh, added a few times off the way, and it has just grown to be almost uh, roughly 10% of my portfolio today. I'm very high, I have very high confidence in that company's ability to continue growing uh, for a long period of time. So I'm just going to keep letting that, uh, letting that run. So my top 10 holdings uh, probably account for um, about half uh, of my portfolio, roughly, and my bottom 70 account for you know the other, the other half, and it gets deconcentrated on the way down. But given my, uh, given my willingness to, to add slowly over time and let kind of my winners run, uh, that's the concentration strategy that, uh, that I'm most comfortable with. Very good. All right. So now I want to shift gears back to some recent events. I mean, uh, I think you kind of have to be, you know, you have to have your head in the sand to have not experienced and seen what happened with Robinhood and GameStop and all this going on. And, and, I want to spin this question to you because as you said, your mission is to spread financial wellness. So as someone with that core mission, when you're seeing what's, what, what happened here, you know, what would you want to say to, to some of these people that, you know, weren't in, interested in the market, but as all of a sudden, you know, you're getting those calls out of the books. I'm sure you did that uh, people that don't invest in the market that are like, Hey, what should I do with this GME? You know? So what's, what, what were some of the things that you were telling some of those folks? On the one hand, I'm happy when things like that happen because it's rare that people in my life have that have no interest in investing all of a sudden ask me about investing. So from that perspective, I'm always like, glad you're paying attention. Uh, on the flip side, usually when something like that happens, it's 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 usually a stock or an idea that they sh that that they shouldn't be uh, uh, investing in. So yeah, uh, I, in one day last week, I got four questions from four separate people in my life that have no interest in investing uh, about about GameStop. So that just shows you how pervasive it became in, uh, in culture. I'm sure that a whole bunch of people for the very th their very first exposure to investing was in GameStop. Like that was just the first time they heard about the concept of buying a stock and and they decided to uh, to jump in and it just went parabolic over a matter of uh, three or four days. And depending on when you got in, uh, you could have made a whole bunch of money uh, really quickly. Uh, however, the game, what's happened with GameStop is very much just trading. It's just about uh, what's going to happen with this stock in the next 30 minutes or maybe day if you had a, a long-term uh, time horizon. It wasn't necessarily about GameStop at $100 a share is a great value and a great stock that I want to hold uh, for a long period of time. So I think that a whole bunch of people are going to be left with a very sour taste in their mouth uh, if they bought GameStop at $400 and now it's at $80 or wherever it is today. I don't even know. Um, but GameStop, the business is clearly not worth $400 per share when a, when a month ago it was worth $10 uh, per share. So I think a whole bunch of people are going to uh, unfortunately lose money on, on a company like GameStop, and that'll be their first their first experience. I can tell you that when I first started investing, I was attracted to stocks exactly like that. Stocks that I knew that I knew almost nothing uh, about, but I, I, I was interested in them going up immediately and taking a profit within a matter of uh, of a couple of days. I didn't even understand that there was a business connected to the stock and the business results influence the stock uh, because that's such a that's not something that we're, we're really taught or even makes intuitive sense how could how could gamestop the, uh, people have heard of gamestop and they've they've shopped there but they're like how can this stock be worth $20 and then $400. Like when you hear things like that, it of course makes no sense that the stock market and the business are completely not related to each other. And the whole point of stocks is to uh, buy them and, and flip them later. So I lost a lot of money when I first started investing because I was buying garbage uh, penny stocks. And I was thankfully interested enough in the topic that I said, all right, what can I learn from this? As opposed to saying, oh, the whole market is rigged and you can't make money uh, in, in investing. So it's my hope that many people that 
that uh, get burned by, by GameStop take the next step to say, what can I do to learn uh, from this and learn about the market as opposed to swearing it off? But I, I don't know what's going to happen there. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm just hoping that, you know, more, more people than not stay on board and realize like, okay, I may have lost a little bit, but let me understand what I did wrong and maybe how I can do better. You know, maybe here's, here's what I can do. I mean, that, that I think that's everybody who's in the business, like we are and covering the markets and, and obsessed with it are really hoping that like, Hey, you're, you're, you made the first step. You're mm -hmm. in, you, you showed you like it in some respect, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have just thrown money at it and call it a day. Right. The people that bought GameStop saved money, uh, opened a brokerage account, uh, used that brokerage account to put their capital at risk, uh, bought the company, and then maybe they've sold the company. Just those five steps alone are really important for for anybody to do because it shows that they've taken an interest uh, in their in their finance and better themselves financially. So if you've done that, I truly congratulate you because you have done something that most people will never do. Very good. All right. Well, actually. It was, it's funny. This is a good segue to um, my, my favorite question I love to ask all my guests. And you talked about how when you first got your start, you were actually looking at companies like GameStop because it's just naturally you don't think like, oh, the stock is a reflection of the business or, or maybe not in a lot of cases. Um, but what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most in your career? Boy, there's been a lot of them. Um, I would say that the mental scars that I had from the very early days uh, when I was investing was the most impactful for me because uh, when I first started investing, the only thing I was interested in was penny stocks. That's it. The only thing I cared about was that the share price was below $5. That was the due diligence that I did on, on a stock. I was like, well, this company's worth $1.70. I hope I can sell it for $1.90. Like that was the, the investing. And uh, I had really mixed results, mostly uh, bad. And when I was first starting out, I was investing hundreds of dollars and I lost hundreds of dollars. And boy, was it painful. <laughs> it was so painful uh, to lose that money early on. Uh, however, that set me up to at least learn from that and, and, and grow from there. I will tell you that I'm a slow learner. So the next thing I did was invest in a dividend paying stocks that had a dividend over 10%. Like that was my next stage. Okay, how can I go from the exact op I, penny stocks are no good, but what about a company that pays a dividend of 15%? I just hold the stock, I make a 15% return. Boom, investing's easy again. And it's like, nope, uh, high yield dividend stocks are also uh, usually garbage companies. And I lost a lot of money uh, on that. And it was just a slow evolution from there, from going from essentially the lowest quality stocks on the market over time to gravitating towards the highest quality uh, stocks uh, on the market. So that that journey took me many years to really go through and fully understand, but boy, am I glad I did. You know, I'm glad that Ian brought you back to the, to the, to the, to the micro cap uh, light in, in a sense, but uh, you know, that, uh, you know, there might be some quality every, you know, every once in a while when you're looking in, in micro cap land, but um, my, my second to last question for you, you know, cause I know we got to get out of here. Your time is, is precious here. So, you know, what would you say, I'd love to get your advice for new investors looking at the stock market, especially right now. You know, what, what's, some, what's some advice that you give somebody that's a fresh looking at the markets right now? Yeah, my best advice would be go slow and try and understand what you're doing before you do it. Uh, the stock market is not a, a get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, the stock market is the greatest wealth-creating tool in the history of mankind, but you're not going to get rich uh, overnight. We get tons of questions at The Motley Fool for what is the next stock that is going to 10-bag over the next year? And it's like, no, that's not what we should be going for. The stock that's going to 10-bag over the next uh, year is some ridiculously high-risk stock that nobody has ever uh, uh, heard of. Uh, what we are looking for is the highest quality companies that we can find that we think can compound shareholder wealth for years and years and years. That is a hard lesson to get through because it's so much more enticing to say, I want to get rich now. I want to buy something now and have, have it fix, uh, fix my uh, financial life. Um, so uh, my advice is, Understand what you're doing and realize that you can make big money in the markets, but compounding takes years. It doesn't take weeks. 
Well, with that, Brian, we're there, man. So where can my audience go and find more information about you, follow you on Twitter, as well as subscribe to your Substack? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is on Twitter is on at Brian Feraldi. And to your point, I also have a, a fun little Substack, Substack experiment that I'm doing where I'm making, uh, taking my tweets and turning them into simple graphics and uh, emailing them out. So if that interests you, uh, brianferaldi.substack.com. How are you making those those graphics? Are you doing them yourself or, or, or yep. how are you making them? Uh, I, Figma. Figma.com oh, cool. is a is a free online uh, image creation tool, but uh, you can also make things with like Microsoft Paint, uh, Paintbrush. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's uh, it, it takes a little bit of while to get 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 used to them, but uh, once once you get the hang of them, you can whip them out pretty quickly. Oh, that's awesome! All right, well, Brian, thank you for taking the time today. This was really great. I, I look forward to our next chat. And uh, hey, man, have, I, we're, this, we're recording this on Thursday, so have a great weekend. Thanks, Robert. Awesome to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.